Well, Matt was talking earlier about some of the resources that we have that we make available here spiritually to you guys for you to grow in your relationship with Christ, for us to grow in our relationship with Christ. And one of those resources uh, that he didn't touch on is the Reformation Study Bible. And I know I pounded that Bible like all last year in the beginning of this year, and a lot of you guys have the Bible, and I get really excited. I don't know if you can actually tell when I ask you to turn, for example, to somewhere in your Bible, and I hear all the pages, like that really thrills me. But we are so excited about you having one of these Bibles that we make them available in the back. We give them to you at our cost. And basically what we say is this, you know, if you can't afford to buy one, just pay what you can or take it. But get one of these Bibles. And I say this to you because as you turn to John chapter 8 today, to the story that we're going to be looking at as we continue our study of the life of Jesus, as John presents it to us in his gospel, we're going to come to a story that you're going to find is contained entirely within brackets, or maybe if you have a different Bible, it's in a footnote and sort of like at the bottom of the page. So you're going along, it's not even in the text. So what's up with that? Because it's weird. Very weird, actually. And I feel like I need to explain it a little bit before we actually dive into the story. So one of the things that many of you already know is that the Bible was not originally written in English, was it? It was originally written in the Greek language, in the lingua franca of the day, in the language of the people, the common tongue that was spoken no matter what language you spoke. There was a commercial trade language, if you will, that everybody understood, knew, and read. And so that's the language of the Bible. That's the language of the New Testament, at least. But prior to the 16th century, copies of the New Testament or of books of the New Testament or of parts of books in the New Testament, because there was no printing press and there were no photocopy machines or anything like that by which we can mechanically and very precisely, in fact, exactly reproduce the original text, copies were made by hand, very carefully by hand by good and godly men who valued the Scriptures and recognized how precious these words were that they handled. And we have, in fact, to this day, about 6,000, 5,800 and something of these different manuscripts. They're whole copies of the New Testament, but more or less they're copies of books or fragments of books and so on and so forth, which is a great blessing to us. The New Testament that we have and that you hold in your hand is the most well-attested ancient literature in the world, and not by a little bit, but by like a hundred miles. And one of the things that strikes you as you study these different manuscripts, and people have devoted their whole lives to the study of these different manuscripts, is how strikingly, some would even say miraculously similar they all are. That's what's striking. And it's striking because if you think about it, they're written by thousands of different scribes in thousands of different locations over the course, don't miss this, of about 1,500 or so years. And yet they're virtually identical, but they're not all identical. There are some minor differences. And in using the word minor, I'm being intentional because what I want for you to understand is that the differences, the discrepancies amongst these different manuscripts from which our Greek New Testament and then our English New Testament comes to us are minor in the sense that they don't affect any of the doctrines that we hold dear as Christians. Usually a word is missing or a phrase is missing or maybe a line is missing. And if you just think about the way that, you know, this had to be done by hand, you can understand why that is. Because as the eye of a scribe travels necessarily from the document that he's copying to the document that he is creating to the copy, if you will, that he's making and goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, even the most careful person could miss a word, couldn't they? 
or, or miss a phrase or miss a line. Like, you know, so for example, you're making your copy and you end with the word did and you look back for that word did right to where you think you left off, but the line below it has a word did in it. And you mistakenly pick it up there and just keep on going. Now, one of the beautiful things is we have thousands of manuscripts, and so we can look at that particular copy and all these other copies that we have, see more copies, thus more accuracy, and we can go, oh, look what the scribe did. You can actually reconstruct. He skipped from did to did. That's it. And we know what the Bible says. Other places, we have scribes who have tried to kind of help us to understand an awkward saying in the Bible, or maybe just to understand a story that, you know, without a little background information, we really wouldn't get. We saw that, an example of it, and I didn't mention it, in John chapter 5, when we looked at that story where Jesus goes to the pool of Siloam, and it's surrounded by all of these, to use John's word, invalids. Do you remember this? And then he heals the man who's been paralyzed 38 years. Now, when we got to that story, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but here are the way the verses go in John chapter 5. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5. And it's not that they don't know how to count. It's that they've taken out verse 4. How many of you notice that? Anybody? Okay. What's verse 4? Well, that's the little explanatory note that really is, by the way, very helpful, which tells us that an angel would come and stir up the waters and the first person into the water would be miraculously healed. And that explains why they're all around this pool. You follow? So some scribes going, hey, man, you know, they're just not going to know this if I don't put this in there. So he then put that in there. Helpful. He shouldn't have done it. But as you compare and contrast the manuscripts, you realize, well, actually, that statement shouldn't be in there. It's helpful, so we'll stick it in a footnote. But now where the verses run, one, two, three, five. So there are minor differences, very, very minor. But there are two locations in the New Testament where there's a larger section of Scripture that sometimes is in the manuscripts and sometimes isn't, that sometimes is located in a particular location or maybe one of three other locations. One of those is the end of the Gospel of Mark. You get to Mark chapter 16, and in some of the manuscripts, Mark ends at verse 8, and others, it ends at verse 20. And when you read verses 9 through 20, you can kind of understand why maybe some scribe would want to leave it out, because Jesus talks about things like handling snakes and drinking poison, you know, and people just don't know what to do with that. So maybe you just end at verse 8. Or does it end at verse 20? Well, I don't know. It's in brackets. I think it includes the whole thing. And the other place in the New Testament is the place that we come to today. This story about an adulterous woman and about a group of hypocritical guys and about our Savior. And I'm going to speak in generalities. What I want you to know is that I think I can say that most scholarship today, though certainly not all, would agree that this is an authentic story. It should be in the Bible. It happened, and it happened exactly the way that it's reported in this particular story. Now, of those people who would say that, most would agree that it should be identified and included in the Gospel of John. And then of those people, most would agree that it should be included right here in the Gospel of John. It's where it's most commonly found. Sometimes it's in Luke. Sometimes it's in one of two other locations in this same Gospel. I am totally on board with that, but not just for the reasons they would give, but for other reasons as well. One of the things that's happening in scholarship today, and it's really kind of exciting, is we are coming to appreciate the literary nature of the Bible. We've come to understand that the Bible is not just a book that is so simple that a child can read it, understand it, and be saved by it, but it's also very highly complex literature. 
Meaning there are all kinds of literary devices that are contained within the scriptures that in our day and age are beginning to be unlocked. And so, for example, we have a literary device called a chiasm. A chiasm is a statement or a phrase or whatever where the first half of the statement, the words, the ideas are repeated in reverse order. I'll give you a simple example out of the mouth of Jesus. Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. You see the reversal? It's a simple chiasm. Okay, well, here's what we're discovering. Whole sections of the Bible are chiastic. Whole books of the Bible are chiastic. And folks have begun to work out these chiastic patterns. And they're very precise. And they're very identifiable. It's kind of like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. You can all of a sudden see where all the pieces are and why all the pieces fit exactly where they do fit. The whole Gospel of John is chiastic. The book of Revelation, which is to be read together with John, is chiastic. These two books are chiastic and speak to one another. And guess what? If you take this story out and if you take it out from where it appears in John 8, there's only one piece missing in the puzzle. Very highly complex literature. And so I think that when we come to this story, guys, it shouldn't be in brackets. And it absolutely should not be in a footnote. I think when you look at the nature of all of this, you come to realize that when we come to this story, and for this, by the way, I'm really thankful, we come to Scripture. And if you're still awake at this point after a discussion of chiasms... Clue in now if you've been sleeping. When we come to this story, we don't come to the story merely about an adulterous woman who lived 2,000 years ago and about some angry group of hypocritical men, for they are all of that and then some, who seek to use this woman and dispose of her at their own expense for their own benefit because they've got an axe to grind against Christ. This is a story about me. This is a story about you. So as we enter into it, I want you to look for you. And I'm going to try to give you some categories, some help. The story actually begins in the last verse of John chapter 7. It starts with verse 53. I'm going to give you kind of a background for the story itself, and we'll pick it up in the middle of the story. But what's happening in the story, if you've been hanging with us in the study of the life of Jesus, is you know that we've reached a point where Jesus has so provoked the religious leaders of the temple in Jerusalem that they are, you know, not like mildly miffed with him. They are actively trying to kill him, or if they can't kill him, at the very least discredit him, meaning have him tested in such a way that they can take one of his statements or one of his actions and then stand before the Jewish people who are, you know, beginning to believe in this guy or at least are massively attracted to him and say, whoa, hey, wait a minute. Did you hear what he just said? Did you see what he just did? Because here's the thing. You cannot follow this man. Kill him or discredit him. And this story is one of the many wicked and yet, frankly, very, very brilliant plans by which they seek to do this. The goal of the religious leaders in this story is to take Jesus and to make him either an enemy of the Romans or an enemy of the Jewish people. And in order to do that, they seize upon a difference in the law, and the difference relates to adultery. So in other words, under the law of the Jews, under the law of Moses, under the law of God, adultery, this is heavy, was a capital offense. It was punishable by execution. 
execution in the Old Testament carried out by stoning. Wow. Under Roman law, it wasn't. And here's the thing. All of them, including Jesus, were ultimately under Roman law. So the horns of the dilemma that they want to hang Christ on is this. They want to come to Him, and this is what they'll do in a second. And they want to say to Jesus, uh, here's an adulterous woman, and here's the thing. Moses says, we need to execute her by means of stoning. The Romans say, sorry, but you are not to do something like that. Which side do you take? Because if he sides with Moses, they're going to grab him and march him down to the Romans, and they're going to accuse him of being an insurrectionist. And do you know what they did with insurrectionists in those days? I'll, I'll give you a hint. It involved a cross. Very intolerant. But if he sides with the Romans, okay, he saves his life, but he loses his ministry. Because they're going to turn around, you know, and talk to not just the crowd, but all the reporters from the Jerusalem Gazette, all the people from CNN that no doubt were there, all the Fox News guys who had hacked phone calls so they knew about it three weeks before it occurred, and they showed up, people from Al Jazeera, and they're going to communicate to all of Israel, how in the world can you follow a guy who on the one hand claims to be God and on the other hand disagrees with the law of God because it, that's what it appears in some sense that he does, though he doesn't. But that might explain why this story is in some manuscripts and not in others. So you see the dilemma. Now, what do they need to carry out the wicked and yet brilliant plan? Well, they need a promiscuous woman, somebody who is easily seduced by a married man, or maybe somebody who is married and easily seduced, or maybe somebody who is married and already involved in an adulterous affair, who knows, maybe even with one of them. Fascinating thought. We do know this, they don't bring the man to Jesus. And we know this too, true in their day, true in our day. Adulterous people are easy to find. Can you identify with this woman? Think about that. You know, it's interesting to me as you go through the Scriptures and you read how God describes His people. How does He describe His people? Adulterous. That's it. And that doesn't mean that they're all sleeping with somebody that they're not married to. That's not the point. The point is that He is their God, and they have forsaken in a way that is alike unto an adultery their husband who is God Himself, and they have run after other gods. So adultery is a big thing. It's not just this little narrow thing. And honestly, it's something that I think we ought to be able to relate to. They find an adulterous woman, and they set up a liaison between this adulterous woman and her lover. I'll put that word in quotes. Because clearly he's in on the deal. This guy is either one of them or he's been bought off by one of them. This is a man that she thinks loves her, but doesn't. And I don't mean to be overly graphic, but they hide in the closet. They set up some plants in the corner of the room and they get behind them. Some of the rest of them peer through the window. Some of the rest of them look through the keyhole. Somehow they actually monitor the situation such that in the midst of the adulterous act, when adultery is clear and undeniable, they then come busting out of their hiding places. Now pause and just feel that for a second. That's unbelievable. 
out they come, loud and boisterous, grabbing this woman out of the arms, not of her lover, and in that moment she learns that, but of her betrayer. Ironically, and it's one of many ironies, to take her to the man who actually does love her and the only one capable of doing so and capable of actually making her lovely as well. They take her out of the arms of her betrayer and they pull her naked because it speaks as evidence against her. They don't show up to Jesus and say, you know, we found this woman walking around naked in the streets and we're pretty sure she committed adultery. They say, she committed adultery and we brought her here like we found her. And they drag this screaming frantic whose life is sort of shattering as she's digesting this person out of the house and out into the street. And who knows what route they took from there. You know, I mean, maybe they dragged her past her husband's place of employment and all the guys in the office. I mean, this would be quite the spectacle, don't you think? Hey, man, look at what's going on out here. I mean, all the religious leaders, they've got this naked woman. and Bill, is that your wife? Maybe they took her past her children's playground. And they're all out at recess playing kickball, you know, and it's like one of the kids is going, I think I recognize her. Maybe they walked her right up the street that she grew up on. Mom and dad are up early in the morning. They got their cup of coffee. They just went out and got the paper. They're spreading it out and kicking back, you know, reading it on the front porch. And there she goes. We don't know where they took her or what the route was or who saw her on the way, but we do know that they took her to the single most populous place in the city at a time of one of the feasts when not just the people of Jerusalem were there, but like everyone in all Israel was there. And then they dragged her through the crowd of the most populous teacher in the temple courts. They dragged her and they put her in front of Christ. This God, man, the one that John has already told us, was with God in the beginning and is God. And they deposit her naked and ashamed at the feet of God. It reminds me of Adam and Eve way, 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 way back in the Garden of Eden. They eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do they not? And what is their immediate recognition? They immediately recognize that they are not just a little bit exposed, but fully. And not only do they recognize that, but then they run around trying to cover over their exposure. And what parts of their body do they cover over? Is it their mouth? Because they ate the fruit with their mouth. Is it their hands? Because that's what they reached out to grab it with. Is it their eyes? That's what they beheld it with. Is it their heart? That's what they desired it with. No, it's their, I'm going to be modest, their generative parts. Because they understood that they had not just brought shame and guilt upon themselves, but every person who would proceed from them physically. My point being that, you know, this woman is not the only one who stands naked and ashamed before Jesus. Adam and Eve were not the only ones who stood naked and ashamed before Jesus. The reality is that there is nothing that prevents the penetration of the gaze of our Lord into our lives. No amount of clothing, literal or figural, hides anything from Him. We are, all of us, naked and when left to ourselves, completely undone and ashamed before Him. And the irony, another irony in this story, is that these guys don't yet see that. 
They drag this woman before Jesus. They deposit her naked and ashamed before him, and they're feeling pretty jacked about it, like they're feeling pretty good about it. They're feeling pretty self-righteous about it. They are not yet recognizing that she is not the only one naked and ashamed before him, but that is going to change. And as we identify with these characters, I hope it doesn't just change for them. So they drag this woman into the temple, through the crowd, to the feet of Jesus. They deposit her there. There she is, you know, just trying to, you know, do whatever she can to kind of cover up as much as she can, like Adam and Eve. It's futile. And they say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Moses says to stone her. Rome says, don't stone her. What do you say? Pause. And they think they have him. Because here's the deal, Jesus, if you side with Moses, we're going to run you down to the Romans and they're going to, you know, probably crucify you. That's best case scenario from our perspective. But if not, we'll punt and take option two. If you side with Rome, save your life, lose your ministry. All the cameras rolling, all the microphones jabbed into his face. Jesus, what do you say? And notice his response. John tells us, second part of verse six, John chapter eight. He says that Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger in the ground. And guys, we don't know what he wrote, but we do know what he said. For John then says, and as they continued to hound him, as they continued to pester him, as they continued to press him, to ask him for an answer because they think they finally, finally have him. This is it. What happens? It says he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, as you dissect that, what is he saying? Well, I think he's saying, first of all, you're right, she's guilty. I side with Moses. Under the law of Moses, she deserves to be stoned. But that's not all he's saying. Little caveat. Because he's also saying, however, guys, before you stone her, there's something I think that all of you need to know. And what you need to know is that she's not the only one naked and ashamed before me. But so also are every one of you men who so self-righteously brought her here. And here's the truth about every one of you. Every one of you deserves exactly the same fate that you're seeking to bring upon her. Jesus is seizing upon something here, something that's not unique to those guys or even to that woman. He's seizing upon the fact that, you know, honestly, we're all naked and ashamed, and we're, frankly, every single one of us left to ourselves absolutely and unequivocally guilty. And I know that many people want to argue with that today, and they want to go, hey, you know, but I don't feel guilty. To which I want to say, so what that you don't feel guilty? Guilt is not a feeling. Guilt's a fact. It's something you either are or aren't, and it's based on evidence, is it not? When you go down to the courthouse, here's what you will never hear. You'll never hear a judge who's just heard all of this evidence at the close of the evidence say, hey, Mr. Jones, we've heard 93 people testify to the fact that they saw you commit this crime. Glory, hallelujah, 15 of them videotaped you do it on the phones that they carry in their pockets, and we watched it from 15 different angles. We've heard your own testimony about how you plotted this crime and, and bought everything necessary to do the crime and how you, in fact, did the crime. And so before we pass judgment, we really just have one last question. And of course, it's the most relevant question. How do you feel about it? I mean, do you feel guilty? Because if not, no problem. It's not a feeling. It's a fact. 
And the fact is that as we look at the characters in the story and we start asking ourselves that question of, okay, who am I exactly? I mean, you know, who, who can I identify with here? It ought to be really easy to identify with this woman. It just should. We have all of us worshipped other gods. And not only that, I think that, you know, the reality is that all of us have done things, have said things, have gone places, have thought things that if like this woman's sin, it was dragged out into the public and exposed for what it is, we would just like her in this moment want to go climb under some rock and die. She is easy to sympathize with. And the reality is pretty much everybody here has been sympathizing with her this whole story. But what about the guys? What about these men? Because here's what Jesus says to them. He says, all right, guilty, go ahead and stone her. But, little caveat, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And you know what? Now it's their turn to be quiet. She's been quiet. Now they're quiet. And why is she quiet? Because Jesus has unmasked them. And he has revealed to them and pretty much anybody else who's paying attention, I would guess, that they were very far too quick to see the sin of this woman and, well, really far too slow to see their own sin and to be humbled by their own sin. So much so that it made them compassionate toward one caught in sin, stuck in sin, marred by sin, as opposed to condemning. Can you relate to that? I think the truth is a lot of us walk around with a pocket full of rocks we don't even realize. All of us, to some degree or another, are far too quick to see the sin of others and far too slow to see our own sin, to be humbled by it, to be made compassionate through it. And so we've got a special pocket of rocks for, you know, our wife or our husband or our kids or our parents who just don't know anything, can't get anything right. Our friends, our teachers, in fact, everybody other than us. And yet we're living in a glass house. And don't realize it. Jesus is unmasking us, guys. And he's saying, hey, wake up. If there's any difference between you and anyone you're tempted to judge, it's not because you're so good. It's because Jesus has done a work in your life. It should make you more humble, not less. More compassionate and less condemning. It's interesting, when we were back in John chapter 3, Jesus made a statement that I think we kind of ran by, but He's talking about His mission, and He says, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. So then what are the odds that we as the followers of Jesus have been sent out to do that? Yet we like to condemn people people who don't look like us, people who don't vote like us. I throw that out. It's an election year. It tends to bring out our ugliness. I'm just going to state that frankly. People who don't agree with us. We need to be humbled by our sin. We need to be compassionate. These guys look at this woman, and please forgive my language, but it is actually biblical language, and all they see is a whore. 
someone to be used, someone to be taken advantage of, someone to be spent for their benefit. How does Jesus see her? He sees her as a beautiful, virtuous, virginal bride, someone to be loved, someone to be cherished, someone to be purchased at the expense of the fullness of his life, his perfect, by the way, life. The only one who has ever lived who could rightly condemn anyone is going to pardon her in a minute because he knows that he will go to the cross for her. The same cross that he went to for you. And likewise, when these guys look at themselves, all they can see is their own piety, their self righteous until Jesus, you know, bends down, writes on the ground, and then stands up and says to them again, verse 7, he says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then John tells us that once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And here again, we don't know what he wrote, but we do know what they did. For John says that when they heard it, after they heard him make this statement, they put down their stones and they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Because just like her, just like me, just like you, what they've come face to face with is that they're guilty. They deserve the same thing that they're championing against this woman. And then we're told, and I just love this, I wish we had this on videotape, because I'd love to see the expressions. I'd love to hear the tone of voice. It says, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him, naked and perhaps no longer ashamed. For he's delivered her in a real sense now from death. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And then the Lord looked at her, I think, very tenderly. And he said, neither do I condemn you. I forgive you of your sin. I forgive you of this adultery. And then he says, go, and from now on, sin no more. And I think with those words, what he's saying is, I am freeing you from this sin, this sin that has, frankly, been ruining your life. I give you power over it. I release you from it. All right, so here's the question. Who are you? Because it's not just a story about some adulterous woman that lived 2,000 years ago in a band of angry, hypocritical guys. Are you the adulterous woman naked and ashamed before the Lord, exposed maybe for the first time in a while, at least that you're aware of, and suddenly recognizing your need for Him to kind of jump in and save the day? to clothe you, not literally, thankfully, but metaphorically with His righteousness, with the life that He lived perfectly in your behalf and in your place, that you might, as the Lord looks at you, that He might only see the righteousness of Christ in you, covering you over, taking away your sin. If that's you, and you come to Him in faith this morning, 
Then hear his words and receive them into your soul, for he says, neither do I condemn you. It's not just a word spoken to her, it's a word spoken to all who come. Or are you the men? Stones in your pocket, self-righteously condemning others, knowing exactly who I'm talking about when I say, you know, you're carrying around your stones and, and you like to throw them at, fill in the blank. Okay. A person a group of people, then step into the presence of Jesus and be made humble. Recognize before Him that you too are exposed, that if there's a difference between you and anyone that you want to judge, it's to be credited to His account, not yours. It's a change He by His Spirit has made and deserves full glory for. Be made humble. Be made compassionate and quit with the condemning. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through faith in Him. That is our mission. It's not one of condemnation. It's one of compassion and salvation. And that, parenthetically also, is the way the world is saved person by person, family by family, community by community, city by city, and nation by nation. Amen? Okay, let's pray.